Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Alan Vey is the guest for today. He's the founder of Aventus Network, uh, which has raised over $20 million. They are creating the proof-of-stake blockchain leading to great energy efficiency. Uh, we talked about the origin of the project, how it's going so far, and what they're specifically doing to create this tech studio approach where they're funding early development of projects on top of their blockchain. And it's a genius strategy, and I appreciate it, Alan, breaking it down. Something other crypto projects should definitely pay attention to because there is a massive problem in the treasury allocation uh, onto new development companies who want to build apps on top of pr protocols. So building your own app on top of your own protocol seems to be a super effective way as opposed to just giving developers money to then maybe build an app on top of your protocol. So anyways, we talked about all that and more. We talked about Alan's background, what he sees going forward in crypto and much, much more. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Alan Vey. All right, Alan, I'm excited to be chatting with you. Uh, you're running Aventus Network. Uh, why don't we start there? Aventus raised roughly 20 million in an ICO. Uh, what was, let's talk about maybe the fundraising of early days. Um, you guys raised through an ICO. You're based in Dubai. Uh, tell me what the project is trying to accomplish in the world. Yeah, hey Mark, good to be here, man. Um, so yeah, we started out, that was back in 2017 when we did our ICO. I had just kind of finished my master's in artificial intelligence um, at Imperial College in London. And I really started building this thing out in London. Our team's still kind of mostly based over there. Uh, it started looking at event ticketing, finally enough. So it was quite a different vision. And in building that out, we ended up doing deals with the big companies like Live Nation and whatnot, uh, originally on Ethereum. And Ethereum just didn't scale. So we were faced with those problems, solved those problems in delivering on the big deals that we had done. That led to Aventus kind of becoming a layer two. And then when COVID hit, we obviously saw live events went exactly a growth sector. So we thought we've got significant treasury because our, the, the money we raised was in Ether, right? Ether was $300 when we raised it. By that time, it was closer to 3000 4000 So we had some good treasury left to expand the vision. And we went beyond event ticketing. So really expanded into loyalty, video games, more recently, aviation, some supply chain use cases, um, all sorts. Uh, and that's where Aventus as the layer two was born, 
most recently there, we, we kind of looked the next step ahead, where things going now, scalability was the big problem. What's the next step? And to us, it's connecting up all the value, right? You see great blockchains, lots of cool communities in different ecosystems, whether it's Ethereum, some of the stuff that's moved into Polygon, then we've got Solana, we've got Avalanche, bunch of core ecosystems. And all of these need to chat to each other and be connected up. And obviously, Gavin would have co-founded Ethereum and then going on to launch Polkadot, having that vision in that ecosystem, we thought we'd really like to plug into that, that Doxama ecosystem, but retain that kind of internet of blockchain mentality, connecting everything up. So that's where we are today. And that's where we're going. We're busy becoming a parachain in that ecosystem. We've just announced our intention to uh, go for one of the, the bids, the auctions to, towards the end of this month, and really making sure that everything can talk to each other, make Web3 adoption really simple for everybody by extracting away the complexity and building out the tools people need. What's the definition in your mind of a parachain? Yeah, so simply put, I'd just say it's, it's a bunch of blockchains that are in the same ecosystem that can securely talk to each other. I mean, this year we've seen over a billion dollars in hacks so far from bridges, right? There are a lot of problems in whether it was Solana wormhole or the Ronin bridge that actually Infinity uses, um, or more recently, uh, what was it? I can't remember the most recent one, but anyway, big numbers. And there are inherent security vulnerabilities with these bridges, with these communications. Polkadot's an ecosystem that's kind of taking care of the communication between blockchains in a way where that's very unlikely to happen. So that's how, that's in the simplest form. It's communication ecosystem. It is specifically communication between ecosystems. So it's you're focusing on building the communication layer between Avalanche, Polygon, uh, Ethereum. Yeah. Solana does. If I can what you call sort of a decentralized bridge to Ethereum, because we were in Ethereum layer two. Now we can chat to all the other Polkadot parachains, everybody who plugs into that ecosystem. And then we just kind of template it out so we can now plug on to whatever the next might be, Solana, uh, various other chains. Another happened so far because we're very focused on plugging into the ecosystem. But given we chat to Ethereum, that all that infrastructure is there. And when you say you chat to Ethereum, look, let's break that down technically a little bit. So, so Bitcoin, right, there's blocks of transactions that are grouped together into the, into the blockchain. Uh, Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, they have different constructs, slightly different constructs, Polygon. And then the yeah. problem you're solving, how do you describe the problem of the bridge? And then technically, how would you explain how, how, what the bridge is doing behind the scenes? Yeah, so many of the problems in, in these bridges, I mean, let's, let's look at these hacks and why some of them have occurred, right? Yeah. Some of it is based on... I'd say not sort of being full, maybe not enterprise, but not running the right software development practices when it comes to hygiene or key management, when it comes to your processes, the boring stuff, but the stuff that keeps everyone safe, right? So I'd say that's 50% of the, the issues we see. And then fundamentally, when you have two blockchains that achieve consensus in a different way, there are opportunities, there are time lags, there are inefficiencies where opportunities for taking advantage of those ecosystems as they start to reconcile, but there's still discrepancies exist, 
Now, it's always different per implementation, but in an abstract sense, that's what you can think of some of the problems as. So in addressing that, the best way to do so is by blockchain sharing a consensus mechanism. That's why the Polkadot ecosystem is so powerful with Polkadot getting out of the way and they call themselves layer zero. So they really concern themselves with business logic. They just worry about getting that right between all of the, the chains. They've just launched the cross-chain messaging. That's a strong way to, to kind of be sure you don't do that. So making sure you have your processes and making sure you take into account these uh, consensus issues and at times perhaps not being quite as performant, but making sure that you put the security first in that communication before anything else. And so let's talk about Polkadot for a second. So they're, they're layer zero. They're doing, what's their unique approach here? Yeah, so they really focus on they let the, the parachains essentially are business logic specific. So you come up with use cases, the use cases like decentralized finance applications, right? Debt lending protocols. There are others that focus on being just like Ethereum, where they copy the Ethereum kind of smart contract systems. Everybody kind of has their own niche. Our niche is being enterprise grade, right? We build the infrastructure, we bring the kind of deals that fit in the enterprise world. Now, what Polkadot does, the support that infrastructure by dealing with all the blockchain stuff that everybody has in common, reaching consensus, dealing with who gets access to this network of communication, a secure way that everybody can secure a slot, how everybody sort of chats across these different blockchains, that kind of cross-chain messaging and all the protocols around that. So everybody can share that same base infrastructure and focus on what we kind of do best in the ecosystem in terms of business logic for specific use cases. Interesting. And um, what, why are those, when you say the bridges, so many of the bridges have been hacked or failed and lost capital. You mentioned 50% is the block and tackling, the managing of the keys, the, the basics here, basic software development. Um, is there an inevitable path forward on the architecture of bridges? This is our bridges, are some bridges decentralized, are most decentralized today? Are we moving to a world where they're decentralized? And what does that mean? What is a decentralized bridge? How is that actually operating? It's an interesting question, right? I guess to a degree it comes down to what's the legal definition and then what does the actual practical definition boil down to? Because people obviously try and tread as close to the legal line as possible, but practically speaking, sometimes that's insufficient. So let's look at, I think it was the, the Ronin Bridge where it was compromised. It was considered to be a decentralized bridge. By that, you mean the, the consensus of the participants in that bridge agreeing on what the state is between the two networks they're kind of connecting, right? The way the participants achieve that consensus, it's not one party that says this is what's happening. There's a collection of parties that come together to agree on what has happened, what's moved from one blockchain to the other one. Now, if you make a majority of that be third parties, so not one entity controlling them, legally speaking, you are decentralized. Now, the problem that happened with the, the Ronin Bridge was over a period of time, there were actually only, I think, maybe 10 sort of participants that were securing this network, seven of which had security protocols, 
um, that were similar or and somehow were compromised in very similar fashions, meaning it was quite easy for a hacker to kind of get access to the keys, get a majority of the network and rewrite it to whatever they want, print their own money. And then when others try to withdraw their money kind of from the ATM, it's, it's actually no longer there or backed by the bank in, in analogy. So that's the kind of idea. Really what you need is a bunch of completely separate parties with separate economic incentives, with their own security standards, ideally with their own technical audits on a periodic basis, uh, doing their own penetration testing of their systems, all of those kind of things that we know in, in software is very important when you get to the kind of market caps we're talking about with these companies, but it seems potentially doesn't always take place in, in some of these uh, implementations. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Interesting. And uh, do you see the future as being inevitably, when we say decentralized and centralized, we do, are you thinking about the number of validators, if that's the right word, that validate the bridge transactions? Am I saying this the right way? Does this, is that kind of, and, and do you feel like the more validators and the more individual operate, is it the individual operator? So seven of the 10 had very similar structural uh, security gaps. And is that, is that like, who are managing these set? Like, who are these people that are managing the seven that caused the, uh, vulnerability opportunity? So this is kind of a, a question blockchain industry wide, right? What is decentralized? What counts as they're not being a central party? So when you look at some of the, the legal cases, um, and obviously it depends, I'm, I'm going on sort of SEC statements, right? So Security and Exchange Commission in the States. Um, the former people who were in charge, obviously saying Ethereum is not a security for a variety of reasons. You use the, the Howey test to obviously evaluate some of these things. More recent administrations, potentially less favorable, but now maybe it's going to the commodities uh, kind of commission. I mean, that's an aside, but depending on how you look at it, what counts as decentralized? So 
if there's not, if there's no party that if they went bankrupt or ceased to exist, stop paying their server bills and their, their validators, nodes, whatever you want to call it, go down. If there's no party you can eliminate, which destroys the entire ecosystem, I'd say technically speaking, that's to a degree decentralized, right? So if you look at an architecture, let's go back to the Polkadot example we discussed. Polkadot obviously has significant number of, let's call them validators or, or collators within their chain. And there's, there's a significant number of those, which means that anybody building on top of it, the parachains, the business specific logic, doesn't really need a hell of a lot of nodes because you're deriving your security from there. It's a similar principle to Polygon, right? Polygon derives its security from Ethereum, meaning that because Ethereum has so many validators, they don't quite need the same number because that, in, that security exists there. You still need significant amounts, but much less so. So it always boils down to, to that same kind of thing. Yes, more is better if they are more diverse. Just more number of validators doesn't help. You require more parties with differing economic incentives or interests within the network to be involved. But as you scale that, you start having issues with scalability. There's, there's always trade-offs, right? So that's why a multi-tiered kind of architecture, um, as you typically see in, in, in any sort of bigger um, application, is, is what it's all about. To have your security layer at the base that takes care of the good things, build your business logic on top, get your sort of whatever infrastructure on top of that that helps you with your load balancing makes it a bit more developer experience friendly um and really focus on that that tiered architecture to deliver the greatest security hmm. okay i think we painted the landscape of bridge as well when you think of what the, the future looks like you describe it as it's not necessarily more validators but more diverse validators presumably to prevent a kind of systemic wide or consistent hack if you find a vulnerability in one validator and seven others have the exact same and there's only 10 total then you have a 400 million dollar hack uh like what ronin happened which i believe was bailed out i see a note bailed out by binance is that right I didn't follow it extensively yeah. afterwards. I kind of learned a bit more from the technical side of it, but I've seen a few of the yeah. bailouts or other people come in, whether it's VCs or, or parties like Binance to try and help prop up the ecosystems. But if you look on post any of these hacks, total amount of the assets locked within these bridges, they plummet and they haven't returned for any of the ones mentioned so far to anywhere near the same level as before. And what would be an incentive for either a VC or an exchange to, when they say bailout, I, I think of it as the classical like government bailout. So government giving usually very low interest loans to companies to help them through difficult financial times. A, now we're talking in an analogy here, but a bridge is not a centralized organization. How, what does a bailout even in theory look like in this example? So I would say if you look at the economic incentives within that environment, right, this there's two reasons to support an ecosystem. It's either one for the value that you believe you can buy on the cheap or for the risk mitigation that is required because you yourself have exposure to that ecosystem. So often it's not clear what the legal agreements are behind the scenes, who's involved in what to what depth. But let's say, for example, you have a significant stake in a company that has certain exposure to one of these compromises happening. You may be incentivized if they're good user numbers, if there's good tech, but there was just a mistake, 
to try and support that asset and use that that user base elsewhere, right? There's, there's still value there. It doesn't immediately go to zero. Confidence is lost in that particular implementation, but there's value in the communities. There's there's so many different sort of assets that compromise a business or ill comp- businesses are composed of that I believe supporting those users, making sure that they don't get com- completely burned by it. I mean, one for the industry as a whole, it's beneficial to not have massive negative said, uh, sentiment breakout again. But even more specifically, you may be able to acquire good favor or generate additional usage for your ecosystem by supporting an ecosystem like that. So I can't say I know for a fact why, but if I think of the economic incentives involved, that's how I would reason about elements of it. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine it's just donations. Like I I can't imagine Binance is interested in just giving money away (laughs) to people (laughs) on different bridges. Uh, So there has to be at least a perceived positive ROI. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, I think Celsius is kind of in the middle of that now with uh, yeah, famously, uh, what's his name? Sam Bankman-Fried coming in and offering different projects, uh, money to bail them out, BlockFi or Celsius or others. So it's kind of an interesting like secondary market after like after catastrophe strikes, who the people are that come in and, and offer uh, deals to help these either companies or protocols and some examples through. Um, okay. So let's talk about Aventus a little bit more. Um, what, what would be, you, you advertise on a site that it's enterprise, uh, grade. What does that mean exactly? And what's the difference? What should, what is, what should come to mind when someone thinks of enterprise in crypto? Yeah. So I would say there's two ways to kind of break that down. It's in terms of, uh, features and, and like this sort of product suite but also more sort of governance um, and on the corporate side. So let me start there. Um, when the, how we've built our ecosystem, so we'll go through quarterly technical audits. We have sort of an independent board of a bunch of regulated entities and whatnot that sit within a foundation. So we'll, on a quarterly basis, have to put forward what we believe we can achieve. We will then be assessed against that criteria at the end of a quarter by an independent board sort of um, uh, government agency um, auditors who will come in, they'll have a proper look through everything. They'll make a recommendation to the board. And on that basis, we'll either receive grants for the work we've done, have certain penalties depending on what wasn't delivered. So that kind of a structure along with side having um, independent, non-executive directors, regulated entities and whatnot, the public traded company, regulated administrators, administrators, um, also the local regulator involved in what we do, all of that helps you build up the governance structure to make something uh, a bit more on the enterprise grade side. And then in terms of feature set, what I'd say is when you're looking at how you roll out a product, it's obviously sort of, you can build it MVP, try scale it that way. And many of the products in the early days that was done. But you get to a point where the architecture sort of matures, how you're working on your tech debt and the various processes you start putting in place, right? So this is key management procedures. This is looking at disaster recovery. This is the penetration testing. This is all of these kind of uh, audits, code audits, all of that kind of stuff in place um, forms part of the picture. And then just what you focus on feature-wise. So for example, Aventus, we've built what we call the Gateway API. So we have everything from the base blockchain network. Then we have 
different validators people can run and we have managed service offering around that so that we can kind of support people with service level agreements and ensure that code's being operated in the right way. We then have uh, the gateway API that we build on top, which is almost like Infura for Ethereum and load balancer. It provides people the ability to sort of proxy and pay for people's transactions on their client's behalf. So it means bigger corporates don't have to touch crypto or their users don't all have to touch crypto. They can kind of process that on their behalf or use intermediaries. So different ways of how you look at the, the payments, the invoicing of some of the entities as well that can't touch crypto and how you can kind of work around that. So yeah, lots of different areas. The key things to focus on if you want to do deals with public companies or highly regulated entities. And what, what's a customer of yours? Like what would be a typical transaction? Like ideal customer comes in, how much do they pay? What are they getting? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say ideal customer would take our blockchain as a service offering where we deploy them a permissioned version of the Aventus network. Within that network, they're required to use the utility token in the same way on the public network. It maintains a bridge to the Aventus network and Ethereum, which means they can, they've got their own internet, but it has the ability to connect to the internet of blockchains, right? So that's at the base layer. On top of that, they would purchase the gateway API product to ensure they can integrate their application. So let's use aviation as an example, because we're busy rolling out some, some cargo deals with Heathrow Airport and uh, National Airline. Um, so set up the base blockchain, then set up this infrastructure so we can plug in the existing tech stack using RESTful APIs with SLAs and, and somebody they can call up in an ASTA-kit kind of thing when, when stuff goes wrong, right, the way they used to work in the software. Um, we have a white-label NFT marketplace offering where you have regulated custody, both in the, the U.S. and Hong Kong. You've got sort of insurance products wrapped around that, fiat on-ramps, all of that kind of good stuff if you want it, or as simple as OpenSea, you know, anywhere in between. So that's, I would say, more in the sort of platform-as-a-service layer. And then ultimately into the application domains in some areas like ticketing, for example, the deal that we had done with uh, on the Live Nation festivals um, was for ticket delivery. So we built a delivery wallet where you essentially deliver NFT tickets and through that you help. So, so that alt is sort of B2B2C. We don't deal with the B2C elements, but all the way up the software stack. So I'm just demonstrating to you at different levels of that stack from the infrastructure of the blockchain to the, the, the sort of platform as a service layer and up into the software as a service layer, having offerings across all of that. Hmm. And it, you mentioned ticketing a couple of times in the airport. I imagine the application is related to people's tickets. Is there a, is there a, a, a problem with the current ticketing solutions, either on you know, uh, in-person experiences or on airports, like I'm picturing Apple Pay or Apple you know, pops up with the thing. So you have digital versions of that. It could be a PDF on your phone or a paper version. Is there a incentive for airports to move to NFT or crypto decentralized ticketing? So ticketing, mostly we've dealt with live events so far. Um, in aviation, it's not ticketing for, uh, we don't do any ticketing for the actual um, airline tickets. Although we are busy exploring, a lot of airports are struggling right now with the problem of check-in times. I think check-in times have gone from something like 40 seconds on average to over three minutes, right? With all of the COVID checks that have to happen, 
There are a bunch of other things they're checking. They never used to have to. They're understaffed as it is. The whole industry's taken a hit right from the, they've had to make cuts. So they're looking for operational efficiency. So there are conversations ongoing around the representation of the different levels of authentication that user has gone through and restructuring what levels of like pre-authentication you can get in the States. You guys have stuff like TSA pre-check or whatever, right? Where you can, you can kind of do a lot of the work before you get to the airport. A lot of that doesn't exist um, in Europe. So it's looking at some of that kind of infrastructure. Is blockchain absolutely essential for these applications? I don't think so. It's more interesting on the cargo tracking front uh, in aviation, uh, where you're kind of creating a, an interoperable backbone between the different sort of, it's a provenance system, right? We've got a bunch of systems, a bunch of paper work done at any point, 5% of these things are missing in the world. And there's, there's a big expenditure around that. So making sure you know exactly where everything is and you have that sort of uniform backbone of interoperability between all the systems, that's where the power really comes in in the aviation sector. And when you're tracking packages, uh, it's a good point. It's not ticketing. It's, it's packages. Are, are, is there currently today, is it a centralized database when they scan, you know, picturing like UPS or DHL or FedEx? I'm sure they have a database where they just manage this internally. The benefit to them to moving decentralized would be what? They could coordinate with other shipping com companies? Is that the idea? Yeah. So when you look at it today, you've got, it's quite complicated how it works at the airport, right? Everything fits within what's called a ULD, uniform load device. And that's where you've got either baggage, uh, post, or other cargo, right? That's one unit. And these units are the things that people track around um, the airports. And it goes through different people's custody um, and different airports. Now, where it gets quite complex is when you're dealing with what they call interlining, which is where multiple different carriers are involved in one ULD. So you start whatever, let's say out in, in, in China somewhere, that will then get carried by one airline to Dubai. In Dubai, it switches to a different airline to London. In London, it switches in a different airline to wherever, right? That's interlining of um, the freight. Then there are many different baggage handlers that are involved. There's, there are about five or six parties involved in moving these things around. So many of them use different systems. They have different formats in those systems. There's a lot of the stuff that's done in sort of paperwork. So currently they lose 5% of these things at any point in time. They don't know where 5% of these things are. So that's where I think the power of blockchain can kind of leapfrog the infrastructure to a point where it's all sort of interoperable with a common standard and communication channel on the back end. Um, and that's where you can hopefully reduce that number down as much as possible. In, is the on-ramping to a world where all device, all packages are tra tracked on blockchain, is the on-ramping to that through a some sort of coercion of different players to use this or is it within their interest? You know, who's to, what, what is the incentive of like the third airline in a five airline journey to scan or use these, use the blockchain? Are they, would they be getting paid for this or how does this practically get rolled out? Yeah. So the, the penalties along this process for wherever the thing goes missing, right? So if somebody misplaces or can't prove that they got it to the right spot ah, on yeah. hook for payments, that's how the industry works. So the only person this really doesn't work for 
is the company that sells these ULDs because it's great when they go missing, they get more sales. But they're not really involved in the supply chain beyond selling people the, should we call it the hardware to move things around, right? So it benefits all industry participants, although most are not very tech savvy. So it's important to start with those that do have uh, sort of more of the technical infrastructure or go to the systems providers already. So we very much intend to have a B2B model where we help support the industry, the existing sort of participants to upgrade their infrastructure rather than looking at a replacement product. We're, we're very much in the business of owning business transactions and only building as far as we need to into the application domain to kind of realize that value. And, and would this be a big enough opportunity? The pa- I'm picturing if you, if Aventus was like the blockchain for the entire world's shipping and freight management, like that, that would that would be such an enormous accomplishment. Uh, why bother spending your time with like ticket ticketing projects or something? Right, you can only go after so much in a day. How, how do you think about like directionality? How you spend your time? Yeah, so what we've tried to do is build an ecosystem of companies and make them as independent as possible at any point. So to a degree, it's almost been like a venture building studio model. So we will start in a new domain. We will bring different people from that industry, get them involved in the board, get them on the cap table of that business and hire in staff to that business. So as Aventus, we fund the first rounds of that business to solve the problem and find product market fit. From there, we then build businesses that can attract VC funding and kind of live on their own. So this is like planting a bunch of seeds. We get it to the point where it's a tree that can kind of sustain itself and then hand the reins over to to other people to kind of really run that. So we're very much focused on the infrastructure of things, building the plumbing, building all of the tools that people need to realize this. Now, in the early days, we have to build all the way up the stack. That's the ticketing example. More recently with the video games, we've built, so let's take loyalty as an example. We built a loyalty coin that's now got 2 million active wallets. That's rolled out across four territories globally. We built the initial infrastructure, came up with the design of how you tokenize this cashback system in a more efficient way using blockchain. And we licensed that to a partner in industry. So really, we just take it as far as we have to, to get industry buy-in. And then we kind of let the experts run with this. Like we're in the business of owning blockchain transactions. Our primary goal is to get Aventus being the engine in as many areas as possible. So to us, it's a diversification of risk. We went all in in the early days on ticketing and saw how that played out. So we really remodeled our business to be focused on planting these various seeds, getting them to a level where they can then kind of flourish and grow themselves. Interesting. That is an interesting layer. Uh, how many different projects now are are active? And I guess by active, I would suggest the definition of uh, having raised outside capital or have outside people working on on that on that project. So everyone that we've done has reached that stage, fortunately. Um, so that would be we've got a video game token in game economy, um, essentially looking at how you incentivize people. So we've licensed that to a partner. That's got about 600,000 users on it right now. I mentioned the loyalty application. We licensed that to a partner. That's got about 2 million active wallets on it. We've got, obviously, we did the ticketing side of things. That's had a, uh, just shy of a million tickets go through it so far. We have done, on the Aventus block, uh, then the other use cases, there were some supply chain use cases. Those were very low volume, though, but a couple of gold deals in Dubai where they moved some assets around looking at the provenance on those. 
And then NFTs, that's where we've seen significant growth um, more recently in our ecosystem. So in the, the year and a half that we've been sort of properly in production now since February last year, we've done about 20 million transactions uh, through the network across the various use cases. So there's, of the core ones that we really built the business up all the way, I'd say there are about five. And then there are obviously just third parties that come and, and use the infrastructure. Those on now that we've proved various use cases, you start having to chase people and some actually come to you and you can, you can do it the easier way around. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, I talk to a lot of different projects who will raise money either through VC or an ICO or you know, somehow, and then they'll have this capital that they then create the foundation. So the end goal is like, make this protocol large. You own a portion of the protocol. That's your path to, you know, your financial path. And then the foundation is dedicated to be effectively being a VC, giving grants to people that then build on your layer two protocol or layer one protocol, whatever it is. And that seems to be consistently failing. It seems like there's not many great examples of foundations who can effectively manage capital. And I think part of that is, uh, is there's not, there's no, unlike a VC, there's not a, a legal relationship. It's not like I'm owning shares in your company. It's typically grants allocated to small development teams who put forth proposals. And so the development teams have gone away, gone around and said, okay, I'm going to give a proposal to everyone and then I'll take the grant and then I'll kind of just not really work on it and whatever. <laughs> so it, it seems like a major challenge across the industry is how to allocate foundational dollars to helping to, to, to sparking development on their protocol, right? A lot of protocols are sitting around with money saying, we want people to build on us, but we don't really know how to do it. And you guys have taken the tact of, let's just build it ourselves and then create the seed, like you said, and then hire people. So you're acting more like, it'd be more analogous to a accelerator uh, or like a launch pad than it would be to a VC fund, which is categorically how other protocols have approached this. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, big time. Yeah, I yeah, I normally refer to it as like a venture building studio. I guess it's really mm. what degree of hands-on are you going in? Because really for these, we will go in, we will define the initial product, we will score the kind of headline deal that proves the product market. A few small deals, but you need that like big name, right? Somebody that resonates in that industry. For aviation, Heathrow Airport resonates, right? For ticketing, Live Nation resonates. So once you get it to that stage, then you can obviously attract your first, whatever, two, three million funding and a seed round from a VC. A VC ensures that whatever team you bring in there, they have that proper corporate discipline, should we say. And that seems to be much more a recipe for success. Or, I mean, let's see how big it grows. But so far, we've found that to be much more successful than the few projects we have said, okay, she has a grant and uh, on average, haven't seen amazing results from. Mm. What, what's your backend recipe here? So you have an idea, you have a thesis around like gaming, NFTs, uh, shipping. I imagine this comes forth through just brainstorming. Like where is, is there a particular like thought matrix you're running through? Like, pro, you know, problems in the market, the number of participants, the number of, like, how do you sort of think through the different, um, you know, there's not a ton of them. You have five companies and there probably doesn't need to be a ton. You know, it's not like you need, 10,000 projects, you maybe need, you know, 10, five per year. Like it's, it's a small and manageable number, but they each can be very large. 
yeah, how do you think through both the identification of the type of project you want to invest in? And then what are you doing in the early days to build it? Is there a team of developers who just kind of run with a product scope and onto the races? Yeah, so we do it all very much um, client-first, client-driven. So we will look at who do we have access to in what areas. Obviously, you have to, you can't go into any random sector where they're, they're use cases. But this technology, especially with NFTs now as well, that opens up a whole nother window of engaging wider use cases. So it's having a core team of maybe three or four people who really understand the fundamentals of this technology and how you could apply it and giving those people together with our, should I say, connector network. We have maybe four or five individuals who are incredibly connected um, globally within different markets, right? These guys are kind of black books where if you say you want to get to person, if you say, I want to talk to Ikea, you're chatting to one of the founders the next week. So it's building first those reputations with those introducers to understand that you're not going to make them look stupid when they put you in a room with someone big. So that was step number one. Step number two was then really making sure that that analysis piece is there. So we chat with the introducers. Okay, share all the people, share all the theories we can get to, share all my hottest contacts here, less so, here I have really good relationships. And then we work those relationships. We understand, okay, these are the different sectors. Now let's prioritize them relatively. And we'll go through as a team, we'll be like, okay, I've got these ideas, I've got these ideas. And the more of these things you do, the quicker you can kind of run through that process. It takes very long in the beginning, obviously. And then from there, we'll then start having the conversations. And it's always on a friendly basis. We never go in and it's like, she has a hard pitch to, to buy my thing. It's, hey guys, we want to have a friendly conversation. You know, we know blockchain really well. You are obviously the expert in your industry. You've got time now. Let's have a chat and see if there's some new revenue streams we can unlock for you. And then that friendly collaborative approach leads you to getting a really good insight. It's the relationship building, right? You then really work on the relationship with that party. You understand their needs. You understand how you could potentially solve problems and make their business better. And then you work back from that to a solution. So that process all kind of sits with product and, and business development. Until such time as we then get a legal agreement, that's when we really bring the tech teams in and we're like, okay, now we understand what the scope of work is. We understand what value we are saving or creating, and we're just taxing that value. So net, you're making money off of this. Um, we carry the costs of all of the initial R&D. So it's, it's on a no-cost basis. We're just going to figure things out. We've got a good relationship, and that's how we then build it. Then when we do that initial MVP, that's the point at which we prove it or disprove it. And that's where we go from having spent a couple hundred thousand to say, okay, now this project gets serious resource. Interesting. Great description, by the way. So you're, you're almost, we really are running a venture studio. I mean, you're doing everything from uh, brainstorming to discovery and uh, processing that with people in the field, mocking it up on a prototype, funding early development, and then shipping products to get early users and then recruiting people to then run it. And you've done... That, that that general process has been run through five-ish times for the different applications. Exactly. So that's what we did in ticketing. That's what we did in loyalty was then next. After that was the supply chain use case. From there, it was the video games. And then most recently um, in NFTs. So yeah, those are wow. the key five ones. And now we're repeating that in aviation. So that'll be the, the sort of sixth sector. And is this uh, funded by a separate fund 
so early on ICO, the ICO money came through on how ICOs work is they come through on a, a token. So people will, uh, you'll issue tokens, people will purchase those tokens, you typically at a discount. And then that's the incentive for people to purchase it like on the IC, on the initial coin offering. Um, it, is that, is there a separate foundation that's how, how you structure the organization? Um, yeah, yeah. Structurally. So I run the commercial arm and I have to go to the foundation and justify our existence. I was talking before about the sort of corporate regulatory structure. So we have the foundation that's completely independent. That's where the independent sort of non-executive directors that they're the guys who have the technical audits that you have to pass on a quarterly basis. That whole process sits with that entity. So we'll go forward and say, look, so we've built a business that's kind of revenue generating. We've raised some VC funding and then we show, okay, this works. Then we'll go back and say, we've identified another one. And then we kind of have to jump through those hoops and that process. So very much in the way we have to build these businesses is kind of modeled out after a lot of the VC models, right? Where you've got to hit the certain metrics. You've got to get your KPIs around certain things right before you unlock your next tranche of the kind of money that's been agreed. So that process is, is how we kind of go through it. Now, anybody can apply and kind of jump through these hoops. Um, and a couple uh, have done it, but nobody has been able to kind of generate the, the objective of the foundation is to deploy its assets to ensure that there's a sustainable ecosystem past all assets having been deployed, right? That's, that's the ultimate goal. So if a business gets any financing from the foundation, all blockchain functionality has to become exclusive to wherever that token is used. That's the kind of incentive of the foundation to look after that, that sort of ICO promise. Beyond that, the objective is get businesses that can pull in other capital and just kind of exponentially grow the ecosystem through different use cases, different capital. Ideally, there's a value-added model on top of that where enterprise value can be captured through other value-added services that aren't necessarily blockchain-related, but ensure a sustainable business that can continue to drive transactions. So that's the model that they look at when they're assessing kind of the applications within the ecosystem. Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vent. Vent is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VIN. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. And how much of the initial, I know it went, it, it changed in, in price, but how, what is the treasury? Is it consisting all of Aventus network tokens? And then who is, who, who currently makes, how many people um, are on the board that make that decision on the foundation's behalf? Yeah, so the... Treasury initially was 60,000 ether that was received in return for selling 60% of the ABT token. So that okay. 60,000 ether was worth $20 million at the time, but obviously significantly expanded from there. I don't have clear visibility as to exactly how much is left there, but so far, I believe about $50 million has been deployed. So significantly more than was initially received in terms of dollar value. Um, in terms of 
Then there's also a component of AVT. This is all public information because it's on, you can see it on the Ethereum blockchain. So there's about 12% of the total AVT supply remaining within Foundation Treasury that's being deployed towards grants and whatnot. We, we actually are busy going for the uh, parachain slot. So as part of going for that parachain slot, you put up rewards for people who help you secure the slot. So I know 600,000 AVT is going towards anybody who participates in that to help secure the parachain slot for 96 weeks. So those are kind of areas that gets deployed in. In terms of that board, um, it's five people that sit on the council itself and then have a bunch of independent sort of auditors, technical advisors, third parties that generate reports and whatnot. So independent, professional career, non-executive directors who evaluate all of this information and kind of make decisions on that basis. So there's regulated administrators that sit on that board. There's a bunch of different people. This is all set up in, in Jersey and Channel Islands. Jer you said New Jersey? In Jersey, Channel Islands. So it's, it's just offshore from the UK. Gotcha. Okay. So there's a, there's a nonprofit company that you set up in uh, an island off the UK in the Channel Islands. So he's registered there. And then he, was it you who chose the, the five people? Did you say five people are on the board? Yep. Is it so they were selected, the, the administrators. So when you set up in that jurisdiction, there's certain, it, it's like when you set up in uh, Dubai or Singapore or Gibraltar or any of these jurisdictions. Um, that board comes together. There's certain regulatory requirements. So there's certain administrators that just have to be on it if you set up there. And then they are the key deciding force behind how the rest of everything kind of comes together. We helped draft the charter initially. So the purposes of the foundation, this is what everybody understood when this was kind of the terms and conditions of the token sale back in the day. So everybody understood when you're purchasing this, what is the purpose of the entity with respect to the tokens and whatnot. And then that's the structure. So it's a not-for-profit, there are no beneficiaries. All it does is act in line with that purpose. Mm, gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. Um, got it. And it's necessary to do that because the money you raise through the ICO has to be allocated somehow and to have it be allocated through the same company who's making the software introduces a conflict of interest. Is that the primary? That's the premise of most of the kind of setup of the blockchain structure around mm -hmm. the 2017 era era. You separate commercial arm from uh, more objective arm, should we say, in terms of evaluating performance and achieving the purposes. Because once you have a commercial arm, there's always equity, which can create a skew of incentives. There is somebody playing for the best interest of token holders or for the best interest of the equity. And despite mm -hmm. trying to be able to always prove that, that conflict of interest will always be something that somebody in a legal case could pull on and say, but there was always this potential conflict. So this structure removes that by having no beneficiaries, not-for-profit, ultimately mm -hmm. make a decision on how you distribute the assets. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that was pretty straightforward for you because that's how most of the other projects are structured and it, it works. So why not? Yeah. It was pretty much uh, a copy-paste. I got to say, we've got um, so coin shares, about 5 billion AUM headed by Danny Masters. They sort of traditional finance guys building blockchain products. They were our first investors, really, back in the day in 2016. And 
they were the first sort of one of the first um, exchange traded products. Um, so they understood traditional finance, uh, corporate diligence, compliance, all of that stuff. And that's why they, they pretty much set up a majority of the structure knowing how to do it correctly from traditional oh, financial markets. That's great. That's awesome. Uh, cool. So do you feel that going forward, the next five, 10 years will look uh, certainly, well, do you feel that they will look virtually similar to how people experience it today and how they're interacting with major companies and experiences like airline ticketing and gaming? It'll feel the same, but that a significant under the hood technological infrastructural change will happen to moving to a decentralized uh, methodology for the primary reason of coordinating between different organizations? Would that, or if that's not the summary you would give, how, how would you give the five to 10 year outlook? Yeah, I really think this was infrastructure, right? People didn't really notice the infrastructure changes that took us from web one, which is should we say read mostly blockchain uh, internet to web two, which was kind of read and write internet where suddenly you're putting your information out there on social media sites and all of the stuff stems from that. So I think you will see the implications of the the new business models and the new economic incentives, but I don't think the court um, infrastructure will necessarily be that apparent to your average person using the products, right? So yeah, I think it's infrastructure. It's going to roll out on the back end, but transform how many of the products work. So if you look, many people look at a future and they say, oh, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations could take over governments and decentralized finance could take over banks. And I'm not sure I really subscribe to that class myself. I think having these tools puts pressure on the existing market participants to innovate or be beaten by their competitors that are innovating. And I think that's how to roll out, right? The, the, the internet didn't destroy um, sort of commerce. It just changed the way commerce was done into a digital format. And that's the same thing that's going to happen here. We're going to see banks become more efficient. We're going to see things, the, the power shift changing. It's almost like a nuclear deterrent. If mm. you do have the ability to take all of your assets into your own custody, if you do have the ability to run these ecosystems without the central authority, you force them into a situation where it's a much more fair and equitable split. So maybe we won't see the same kind of uh, amassed data or wealth concentration between big social media companies. Or, you know, at least there's an alternative to much of that. I don't think it's a big surprise that Bitcoin was launched 2009, right after the, the sort of 2008 crash in the markets, right? So that's the way I see the next five to 10 years evolving. I love it. I love it. Alan, I really appreciate the way you explain things to say, complicated uh, business that you're working on, but it's also a, a structure that I think is super unique and works really well and would be something more projects should take a look at, specifically the the incubator accelerator, like factory process that you've, uh, that you've created. It's awesome. Were, are there any particular books uh, or people or, or tech accelerator programs that inspired you that you want to throw out there? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's at the end of the day, it all comes down to people, right? So of course the Aventus team or everybody that's in the team, like this is, if, if a few hires haven't happened the way they had, we'd never be here today. Um, the various people along the way, 
I'd say I started with, um, <laughs> during my master's thesis, the, the professor who runs the crypto center, William Nottenbelt, he's been involved the whole time. He kind of got the initial passion into all of this. So any kind of academic institution, I think you can find a lot of those kind of characters. Um, he introduced me to Danny Masters, who I mentioned before, who helped structure all of this with coin shares and then the various people down the road. In terms of books, I'd say one of the best ones that I read um, is a book called Grit, looking at how you combine um, passion and perseverance. When, when people talk about being talented or whatnot, how much does that matter versus just kind of beating on your craft and really putting in the work? So I think really learning that discipline um, is kind of key to everything. Is, is, that was a very helpful book for me anyway, a book for me anyway, coming from uni and being, should we say, maybe a, a little yeah. less structured and disciplined. Um, and then accelerators and whatnot, I, I would just say that the, the sort of investment partners we have involved with us, uh, Gabby Ventures, which is CoinShares, Skytail Ventures, those guys have, have really, really helped uh, put us in the map in, in various industries and, and push us forward. Nice, Alan. Well, thanks for hopping on today. I appreciate your time, man. This is fun to meet you and learn more about what you're working on. Lovely. Thanks for having me, Mike, for flash chatting to you, man. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.